Welcome back to Gal on the Go Unplugged. My guest today is Dr. Robin Chutkin, a renowned integrative gastronologist, microbiome expert, and best-selling author. I'm thrilled and honored that she took the time to come on Unplugged. Hi, Dr. Chutkin. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you have a ton of wellness expertise to share and a new book called The Antiviral Gut. But before we get into your book, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, What about the gastrofield specifically appealed to you to make it the focus of your medical studies? Like a lot of things in life, it was actually a process of elimination, uh, pun intended there, seeing that I'm a gastroenterologist and I'm dealing with people's elimination every day. But in medical school, I actually started out, Kimberly, thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. My dad's an orthopedic surgeon and so is my brother. So it's sort of a family business. And within about mm, 10 or 15 minutes of my orthopedic surgery rotation, I realized I do not want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I thought about some other things. I really liked urology, but with urology, you're dealing with a lot of men, a lot of older men with prostate problems. They're not always thrilled about dropping trow for (laughs) a woman who could be their daughter. And um, I liked ophthalmology, but I was never sure I was actually getting a good look at the retina. I liked a lot of things. I liked general surgery, but I, I ended up in gastroenterology and I chose that. That really wasn't, by that time, I I sort of weeded out some other specialties. But I'll tell you, when you think about the gastrointestinal tract, Kimberly, think about where it's located. It's right in the center of your body. And it is literally your engine. You know, the food, which is a fuel, gets processed and digested there. And then it, it crosses the digestive membrane, the intestinal membrane, and it gets transported in the bloodstream, all the nutrients get transported to all the different organs in your body, to your brain, your lungs, your kidneys, your heart. And so it's so central to everything else. And I love that about it because it does have lots of implications for what's going on in the rest of your body. And, you know, the gut is having a moment. When I finished medical school back in the early 90s, everybody was sort of like, why do you want to wade around in people's poo, like gastroenterology? That's not very glamorous. But as it turns out, like it's central for immune health, for brain health, for heart health, for bone health. So I I love that it encompasses so much about the rest of the body and that it pertains to old, young, male, female, you know, everybody has a gut and potentially something can go wrong with everyone's gut. So that's how I ended up in gastroenterology. That's really cool. And I think it's so taken for granted to your point that it is so centralized and is so, you know, paramount in our overall health. Um, So, okay, you opened up a wellness center in 2004. What was your original vision for the center? And in what ways has that center evolved over the years that you never expected? When I arrived in Washington in 1997, fresh out of my gastroenterology training in New York, so I had been at Columbia for med school residency, I had gone to Mount Sinai to do my gastroenterology fellowship, and I arrived in D.C. as a young faculty member at Georgetown Hospital, and I was there for about nine years, and I had 
an incredible experience at Georgetown. I loved my time there in academic medicine, but I had some ideas around taking care of people with GI problems that involved some innovative things like biofeedback and nutritional counseling and, you know, really looking at people's microbiome. And we just sort of didn't have the bandwidth at Georgetown at the time to really pursue those things. It was, you know, a little bit more of a conventional approach. And so that's why I decided to really open up my medical practice, a digestive center for wellness, as you correctly said, in 2004. And the practice was originally called the Digestive Center for Women, Kimberly, because by virtue in part of being shockingly in 1997, the first woman on the faculty at Georgetown in the GI division. Wow. And, and I know, right? I, that's when I when I reflect on that, I'm like, wow, that was 97. That wasn't so long ago. But they they've not had a woman faculty member. And also, Kimberly, the fact that about 70% of people with GI complaints who will come to see a gastroenterologist are female. So you have this field where you have this preponderance of female patients and a paucity of female doctors. So as you can imagine, I was pretty busy right from the beginning, even without anybody knowing me or you know knowing if I knew what I was doing. And I initially thought about a center that was really devoted to women's digestive problems because we're not just small men, as you know, and our digestive tracts are different. They're different anatomically, hormonally, physiologically, in lots of different ways. So my practice was called the Digestive Center for Women. And a couple of years into it, I realized, hmm, about 35% of my patients are men. And while my female patients don't mind coming to a place called Digestive Center for Wellness, if I were to change a name, my male patients maybe don't love coming to a place called Digestive Center for Women. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I need to be a little equal opportunity in the name. And, and so that was one change or something that kind of started out more for women, I realized was really for anybody who wanted to take a more integrative approach to their GI health. And the other thing that changed dramatically in the last, you know, dozen or so years I guess we're going on almost 20 years since I opened in 2004, is that we as a field in gastroenterology and also me specifically went from seeing the kinds of conditions that are more obvious to the naked eye, like gallstones or colon cancer, things that you can diagnose with a CAT scanner or an ultrasound or a colonoscopy, to dealing with these sort of new and emerging conditions like leaky gut and dysbiosis, things that involve Again, the microbiome, these trillions of organisms that live in and on our bodies, mostly in our gut, that are very, very intimately connected to our health. And these are things or things like, you know, leaky gut, which basically means that the lining of your digestive tract, that inner lining has big holes in it and is letting stuff through that shouldn't normally get through. So things like this that we really just didn't have the appropriate diagnostic tools. You know, you can't diagnose leaky gut or dysbiosis, which means sort of all is not well in your microbiome, you know, bacterial imbalance. You can't diagnose that with a CAT scan or a colonoscopy. And so I, I realized that so many of the tests that we had and the things that I'd been trained to do really were not enough for these sort of new conditions that we were seeing 
And so I had to really educate myself in a whole world of new diagnostic techniques, et cetera. And so much of this stuff really involved careful history taking, right? It, you know, if somebody comes in with abdominal pain after eating, right up a quadrant, you might suspect it's their gallbladder, but there are two tests, an ultrasound of the gallbladder, another test called a HIDA scan that are going to give you pretty much a definitive answer. In this sort of new world of digestive conditions I've been dealing with, there's not a simple test that's going to give you an answer. I mean, sure, there are stool tests to do analysis and so on, but so often that's just supporting data. And it's really being very familiar with these constellations of symptoms and being very familiar with the diagnosis. So there was much more sleuthing, if you will. You had to be somewhat of a medical detective and uh, and I, I actually like that, you know, that there was much more dialogue with the patient, like what medications have you taken and tell me about your diet and your habits and where have you lived and do you get outside and all of these things. So that was really a big shift in my practice. Well, I love that, like so many things, I love that you thought outside the box. I love that you paved the way. And there was like an organic evolution of the focus of your center. And I really love that you didn't settle for like the current state of your field. And you asked all these questions that were like not the typical questions and you were let like your curiosity lead you. Uh, That's just really cool. Well, it's really the patients who lead me. Thank you for that. But it really is the patients who are at the forefront of this movement, of this evolution, if you will, in medicine. And you hit on such an important aspect of that, which is the why, you know, asking these why, like, okay, you have Crohn's disease, but why do you have Crohn's disease? And and so that has been the change. And it's not just in gastroenterology. You know, if you look at allergy and immunology, I mean, I think about when I was in grade school, like nobody had a food allergy. I can't think of one kid in my entire school who was allergic to anything. And now, you know, when you fill out camp forms for kids and stuff, I mean, the allergy section, they're, they're kids who have the soy allergies, peanut allergies. I mean, there's so many kids and adults. So you think about the whole world of allergy and immunology, autoimmune diseases, one in four Americans. So I think the whole landscape of medicine is changing. And really, again, I'm so grateful to all my amazing patients over the years who have pushed me to find answers to these questions. Like, why is this happening? Well, okay. So given that you um, noted all the changes, you know, in, in the medical field, so What is one of your passions, you know, well, one of your passions is identifying the root causes of digestive stress and providing integrated solutions for gut recovery. You know, given all these changes, what has been one of your most challenging causes to identify and why? I think motility disorders are really up there because inflammation, we can generally, inflammation is often multifactorial. So we could say, okay, is it a medication you're taking? Is it the food you're eating? You know, is there stress, et cetera? And we can kind of still touch and see inflammation. I mean, there people think of inflammation as a more abstract thing, but there's specific, um, there's sort of, you know, a specific set of criteria for what inflammation in the GI tract looks like. So it can be a clear diagnosis. When we're dealing with something like a motility disorder, which, you know, to sort of sum that up would be that things are either moving too fast or too slow. And I would say that too slow is a much more common problem that I see. 
that can be really challenging because even if we say, okay, well, this person is more sedentary than they should be, and they don't drink enough water and they don't eat enough fiber and, you know, three or four other things. And even if we fix all of that, there are sometimes inherent problems in the gut, what we call the major motor complex, and just in the the enteric nervous system. So as you probably know, there's this whole second nervous system in the brain. You have your central nervous system, you have the peripheral nervous system, and you have the enteric nervous system. And in fact, we have about seven times more nerve cells in the gut than we have in the spinal cord. Wow. So it's a very nerve-rich organ. And with motility disturbances, it's very difficult to pinpoint the exact reason why somebody is, why things are just moving too slow, slow transit, right? So even when you can fix those external things, you can get people moving, you can change your diet, you can get them to hydrate more. Sometimes you're just still really stuck. And like a lot of things in the gut, there is a very significant overlap between what's happening with the microbiome, right? Is, is the complement of gut bacteria healthy and balanced, et cetera? And that can affect the motility. But I would say that is typically the most challenging, even more than, you know, my my area of expertise, if you will, is helping people with pretty complex autoimmune GI disorders like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis get their disease into remission, ideally without the help of immunosuppressive medications. Those medications can be extraordinarily helpful, but they are fraught with side effects. And so there are lots of patients who who want to try and avoid them. And it can't always be done, but often with some effort, it can be. And while those are complex problems, that's often an easier problem to solve than just getting somebody's gut moving, believe it or not. And Um, we don't have great drugs for that problem either, to be honest. And just a funny aside, my my family and I were in Turkey uh, for a couple of weeks just recently. We just got back last week. And we eat a pretty high fiber diet here in Washington, DC, and it's a very different diet in Turkey. And it was much more sort of animal protein and starch heavy than what I had anticipated. And we got really constipated. And I was like, okay, I've got some tricks up my sleeve. And plus with travel, jet lag, you know, Turkey, we're, we're seven hours ahead there. So there's a whole jet lag thing. Like my gut is still on DC time, but I'm on Turkish time. <laughs> And uh, let's just say that, yeah, we were able to get things moving, but it took some work. And I was like, okay, if I can't get things moving, we're really in trouble. So it's challenging sometimes even for gastroenterologists. Okay. So you authored four books to date and your latest book is The Antiviral Gut, which starts with an impactful story of the Diamond Princess Cruise, covid and the holy grail contemplation of all the people on board that ship. Why were some more susceptible than others to contracting the virus? Can you please address this? When you think about it, Kimberly, you know, I am fond of making this statement, the following statement, which I will now make, which is, it's less about the potency of the pathogen and more about the health of the host. And you know, when I say that to people, they think like, wow, that's very different, but it's really common sense. So if you think about it, think about an elderly person who's overweight and sedentary and a smoker and diabetic and hypertensive who gets pneumonia versus a young, healthy athlete, right? They're going to have different outcomes. 
likely yeah. based on the health of the host. So outcome prognosis, how people do, it, it, it's not an accident. It's just that the, the host health factors we've been looking at are different when it comes to viral illnesses like COVID. So while age and what we call comorbidities, so that's you know the presence or absence of other diseases and even gender and medications can be important, what the scientific data shows us for COVID is that the most predictive factor is really what is going on in your gut. It's the health of your microbiome, and it is specifically looking at the prevalence of an organism, Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, we sometimes call it F. prosnitzii, and that's an organism that's associated with people who eat a high-fiber diet. We see high levels in vegans, and it's protective against not just COVID, but other things like heart disease, metabolic disorders, colon cancer. And having high levels of that bacteria has been shown in several studies to correspond to a better outcome from COVID, less likely to be in an ICU, less likely to be on a ventilator, less likely to die. Conversely, high levels of another bacteria called Enterococcus faecalis, I know they kind of sound alike because Fecalobacterium presidentiae, Enterococcus faecalis, but completely different bacteria. And that's a bacteria that we've known about for a long time that's associated with a lot of post-operative surgical infections, et cetera. High levels of that bacteria is correlated with a much worse prognosis. So whilst we didn't have microbial analysis of all the people on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, what we do know from the scientific studies is that looking at the microbiome and being able to evaluate it is more accurately predictive of your outcome. And, and what you're really finding out with that microbial analysis is the health of the microbiome. And so when we think about, just as I talked about, you know, with my practice, how we really changed the whole field of gastroenterology from things that you can touch and see and feel like a gallstone or cancer and ulcer to these more microscopic things, it's the same analogy here. It's really what's going on on a microscopic level. And when you think about it, Kimberly, we are animated by our microbes. We are just the hive in terms of who's doing the work, who's synthesizing the vitamins, who's clearing the toxins, who's digesting the food, who's training the immune system, who's activating the genes. It's our microbes. There are worker bees. So it's not surprising to me as a gastroenterologist and somebody who studies the microbiome that they are so intimately involved. But that is you know, the inspiration for this book was really quite simple, is I felt like despite the incredible effort that our government and the CDC and, you know, incredible people, Anthony Fauci and people were doing, um, I, I just didn't hear a strong public health message about what the individual could do. And while, you know, I am thrilled that we have vaccines and boosters and all these different things, there is still a lot that the individual can do. And in no way does this take away from those things. I, you know, I'm a doctor. I believe in science and medication when appropriate. But I also believe just as strongly that there's a lot that you can do to fortify yourself. And for example, Kimberly, there was a study that came out in the summer of 2020. It was a population-based study looking at about 54,000 people. And they found that people taking acid blockers, a specific kind of drug called a proton pump inhibitor, 
you might know these drugs uh, through the brand names of Nexium, Prilosec, Prevacid, Protonics. These are drugs that work very well to block acid. And so if you suffer from acid reflux, they're really effective. But unfortunately, stomach acid is also one of your body's main defenses against viruses, because when viruses get into your body, they often get in through the mouth and stomach acid denatures viral protein and renders a virus like SARS-CoV-2 inactive. So if you don't have stomach acid, guess what? The study showed us that you are twice as likely to test positive for COVID. And if you're taking a stomach acid blocker twice a day, you're about three to four times more likely And again, Kimberly, this didn't come as a huge surprise to me because as a gastroenterologist, I've been seeing cruise ship outbreaks of viral illnesses for decades. And I can pretty much predict who's going to come down. You know, you have a cruise ship with 4,000 people, 2,200 get sick. I know that 2,200 are going to be often the very old, the very young. You know, immune system is just developing in the very young. Immune system is waning in the very old. It is going to be people who are immunosuppressed people who are on steroids, diabetics, and people who are taking acid blockers. So we've seen that for years. When we look at a very common hospital-acquired infection, Clostridium difficile, that's a bacterial infection, but same thing. We know that people taking these acid blockers are at risk. So, um, you know, this study came out and I kind of, I use my husband as a sounding board because my husband is in a completely different field. He's in the counterintelligence, counterterrorism, cybersecurity world. So I said to him, Eric, you know that if you don't have stomach acid, you're more likely to get sick from a virus, right? And he was like, no, how would I know that? And so I was like, people don't know that? He's like, no, of course people don't know that. (laughs) And so I'm like, you know that that poliovirus replicates 250 times faster at normal body temperature compared to when you have a fever, right? You know that a fever is designed to help slow down viral replication. He was like, of course not. I don't know that. I'm reaching for some Tylenol when I have a fever. You know, so all these things, I'm like, you know that you need an intact gut lining to prevent, you know, the virus from crossing and getting into the, you know, the inside of your body through your gut. He's like, of course not. So, you know, as I thought about these things that I knew about, because I'm a gastroenterologist and I'm in this field, I realized, hmm, there's a bunch of stuff people don't know. Do you know, did you know that there are proteins in your mucus that actually help? The mucus doesn't just trap the virus and expel it. It actually breaks down viral proteins. And so the quality of your mucus matters. And he's like, no, I'm taking things to dry up my mucus. I didn't realize the <laughs> mucus was there to protect me. And so, you know, there were just so many things um, that came up. And it was, of all the four books by far, Kimberly, it was a much, it was a hardest one by far to write because the science was literally changing by the hour. I mean, oh, wow. I would write something and then like later that evening, there would be, you know, three new articles about this thing. So it was great. I mean, I remember saying to my daughter, who's a senior in high school, but she's a junior at the time when I was writing it. I remember complaining to her one day. I said, Sydney, writing this book is like researching and writing a 20-page research paper every day. And she said to me, yeah, welcome to my world of being a junior. (laughs) (laughs) She was totally unsympathetic, but... um, It, it, it was not surprised, Adrian. You know, not right. No sympathy, but <laughs> it it was an exciting process, and to feel like you know I can contribute in some small way to something as important as this, 
you know, it's, it's a real sort of feel good feeling, if you will. Yeah. And I I mean, myself and I'm sure others who read the book are going to be so grateful because, you know, to your point with your husband, like there are so many things that we take for granted and, you know, experts like yourself go, oh, that must be common knowledge. How does someone not know that, you know, because it seems probably like, um, just that more, more like it would be common and it's not so much to people. And plus, you know, um, depending on generations and everything, we were always like, oh, here, just take this. Oh, here, just take that. You know, um, not knowing that there was not a need to do such and such to, you know, resolve a situation or that by doing such and such, it was going to make something worse, you know. And I also think the actionable piece and, you know, not to compare myself with a fantastic author like James Clare, who wrote Atomic Habits, but a shout out to his great book. You know, when you read that book, there's a lot of stuff. I would dare say most of the stuff in the book is stuff, you know, right? Like the whole concept of start small, be consistent, you know, for it to stick. But there's something about somebody presenting it to you in a way that's really actionable, that just brings it to life. And that was really the part of this book that I'm most proud of is part three of the book, which is really the antiviral gut plan. So I've told you, you know, all this great information about Enterococcus fecalis and and, um, Fecalobacterium prosnitzii and short-chain fatty acids and prebiotics and probiotics and postbiotics and Goldilocks immune system and all of this exciting stuff. And now I'm going to tell you like how to actually put this to work for you. And so that was the cool part of it is not just giving people the information, but really giving people a plan. Uh, And again, like I I start off in the plan by saying like, you don't have to do all of this, but here's actually sort of my top 10 list. I'm going to give you lots of different tools. You don't have to do all of them, pick a few, some you may already be doing, but it was really the toolkit part of it that, that for me was a very satisfying part of the book. Now, okay, to that point, um, you know, in in your focus on protecting ourselves from current and future threats, you mentioned the three key steps. Can you please share about those? Yeah, and and Kimberly, again, like I don't mean to distill this down to a simple, oh, you just have to do X, Y, Z, right? This stuff is complicated. People's medical histories are complicated, but one of the ways I like to think about stuff when I'm problem solving for something like this is this concept of remove, replace, and restore. And that really is a cornerstone of the antiviral gut plan. It is this idea of, first of all, before we do anything else, we need to identify medications, practices, foods that may be harming your gut bacteria, right? So we want to, there's no point doing stuff if you're still at the same time doing, it's like filling the bathtub with a drain out, right? If you don't have the plug in and you're putting water in, you're not going to fill the bathtub. So the first thing we want to do is want to make sure that we're stopping any drainage by identifying factors that are harmful to your gut microbiome. So that's the remove. The replace part is thinking about missing or depleted essential bacteria and how can you replace that? And it's not what most people think. It's not like, oh, you you know, take yourself to the pharmacy and buy a probiotic. Not at all. That may be a part of it. And I have a section in there about probiotics, but exposure to soil microbes, exposure to fermented food, 
exposure to prebiotics, which are the foods that feed the bacteria, as well as probiotics, the bacteria themselves, and postbiotics, the metabolites. That's a big part of the replace. The restore part is how can you really restore your gut shield? That's what I think. When I think about the antiviral gut, I literally think about a shield, you know, right in your abdominal area that's sort of keeping you safe. And so how can you restore that gut shield with the right medicinal foods, with the right micronutrients, with the right environment? I talk about things like the open air factor, which is a sort of germicidal constituent in air, in outside air that actually has antiviral and antibacterial activity. So the right environment, and then some really important scientifically backed mind-body practices to do with sleep and stress reduction, et cetera. And, you know, what I see as a practical part of this is that you don't have to become, you know, a vegan or go live in a cave and be, you know, exposed to nature 24-7 to, as I like to put it, to rewild yourself, right? To sort of redevelop a very healthy, robust, diverse microbiome. But I do feel like the plan brings some important elements of those things, of eating more plants, of being exposed to more soil microbes, of making sure that your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are balanced so that you're not in overdrive and that's not affecting your immune system. And um, and so it's, you know, what to eat and drink. It's lifestyle and mental health tactics. It's all these tips to strengthen host defenses. It's how to approach the medicine cabinet. It is a guide to probiotics and supplements. And then, of course, a bunch of great recipes. Well, okay. So someone getting a little like selfish now who uh, has suffered from celiac disease. And I, um, to be upfront, I had not known about it very long. Um, and I did face covid and I was very scared because I was put on Paxlovid and I had read your book and heard what you said. And I was like, so wanting to ask you, you know, like, uh, do you think I should go on this or do you think I should it? And they were insisting um, because of having autoimmune diseases that I go on it. Um, just wondering, you know, do I stand a chance, do you think, with, you know, future viruses in a non-pharmaceutical way? There's a little bit of bad news and some really great news here. The little bit of bad news is that you have celiac disease, and that's an incredibly inconvenient disease to have because unlike somebody with gluten sensitivity who has to watch out for gluten, but if they have some gluten, although they may feel badly, there's no sort of permanent damage done, right? When you have celiac disease, you have to avoid any and all gluten because as you know, if you don't, you can actually get damage to the small intestine lining. So you get shrinkage of the villi, the little finger-like projections that absorb nutrients and you can end up with nutrient deficiencies. And if you have celiac disease and you continue to have prolonged gluten exposure, you can even develop certain malignancies. So it's a very different bar and that's the bad news. But the good news, Kimberly, and I know you know this, is that when you have celiac disease and you do a really good job of getting all the gluten out of your diet, your typically your antibody tests that you would that your doctor would check in your blood go back to normal. 
we'll say they're flat, meaning they're not detecting the antibodies. And if I were to do an endoscopy on you and do biopsies of the small intestine and the duodenum, where we see the changes, I would see that your villi look normal, right? So that's really the gold standard is that you're with the avoidance of gluten, you your gut can go back to normal. And so for somebody with celiac disease in remission, who is essentially cured by completely avoiding gluten, protein and wheat, rye and barley, and now has a normal looking gut, your risk from COVID at that point is the same as somebody else who is your age who has the same other health history. And so when we talk about that special category for people with autoimmune disease, we are often referring to people with either A, active autoimmune disease, B, who are on medications that suppress their immune system and put them at risk, C, are over 75 or some combination of all three. And so if you're under 65, you're not on any of those immune suppressing medications and your disease is in remission by avoiding gluten, then the good news is you are actually not at increased risk compared to your pair group. Well, that's very reassuring, um, you know, because I, I would hope that people as like myself, you know, once you do find out something, you take those drastic measures and I went gluten-free like immediately. So yeah, you give me a lot of hope. Um, and that's great news to hear. Great. Well, let and me what- also just point out though, for anybody who's listening that I am not your doctor or any of your listeners, unfortunately, I'd love to be, but I'm not. And so I'm giving general educational advice here. But for anybody who's listening, who may be struggling with an autoimmune disease, celiac disease, or otherwise, um, you should definitely discuss your risk with your healthcare professional and make that decision individually. Because while having an autoimmune disease is one additional risk factor, you know, there may be other things going on for why your healthcare provider may want you to do something differently. So I just have to kind of put that out there as a public service announcement. <laughs> Absolutely. No worries. Um, well, okay. So one of the many reasons why I respect you is that you're upfront about your views based on data and science. And to the point you just made, you know, not personal beliefs, you're not a magical thinker, you're a doctor, you believe in the science. And, you know, the science has shown what our vulnerabilities are when it comes to infections like COVID. Um, You write in the antiviral gut how your immune system consists of two armies, an innate system that you're born with and the adaptive one over time. Can you please explain um, the importance of those two armies? Sure. And I'll tell you that everything that I learned in medical school about immunology just came back in vivid technicolor when I was writing this book. I was like, oh my God, natural killer T cells. Yes, I remember those because (laughs) the reality is a huge amount of what you learn in medical school, you don't actually use in your everyday life as a doctor. It's circulating somewhere back there and it allows you to interpret and understand things, but it's not stuff you're actually using. So it was actually great to be able to pull some of that immunology out. So let's do a little immunology 101. Okay. You have your innate immune system and innate, not surprisingly, means you're born with it. Okay. And then the other immune system is the adaptive one. And that's sometimes called the acquired immune system. So the born with immune system and the acquired with the immune system. The born with immune system, the innate, 
is your body's first line of defense. And that part of your immune system responds quickly, but in a general nonspecific way. So the pros are it's quick to respond because it's there, you're born with it. The con is it's general and nonspecific. So for example, if you get a cut in your skin, you're born with your innate built-in immune system will activate cells that can kill any bacteria that may have entered through the wound, but it's not going to be specific for what bacteria have come in, et cetera. Now, the acquired or adaptive immunity takes longer to develop because it's acquired. You're not born with it. And it evolves from different experiences that you've had. And, and this is just fascinating, Kimberly. The adaptive immune system literally keeps a record of every pathogen you've encountered, every virus, every bacteria, every fungal organism that you have encountered throughout your life so that it can recognize and destroy it when it encounters it again. Oh, wow. And so it can take a few days for adaptive immunity to kick in the first time you encounter a virus because it's it, it doesn't have any record, right? But then the next exposure will generally result in a much faster response. And for some viruses, like take measles, for example, no illness with subsequent encounters because you have become immune. So for those of us who are a bit older, we didn't get measles vaccines and we all had measles once. You don't get measles twice because then the next time there's a measles outbreak, you're immune. What does that mean? It means your immune system is like, aha, pesky measles virus. I know what to do with you. <laughs> and a vaccine really takes advantage of adaptive immunity. So vaccines rely on adaptive immunity. They introduce a small, harmless amount of protein from a virus into your body so that your adaptive immune system can get to know it and remember it when it encounters it again. So that's what, when we get the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, we're getting a little bit of SARS-CoV-2 in our body so that our, our body can start making antibodies and get ready for when it actually encounters it. And so that's why the vaccine makes the illness milder when you do encounter it. Unfortunately, it hasn't prevented it, but it means a milder version. And, um, and to get a little bit deeper, adaptive immunity involves these two types of white blood cells, B lymphocytes that make the antibodies that destroy the actual pathogen, the virus in this case, and T lymphocytes, which are like air traffic control for your immune system that remove cells that have been infected and damaged, and they kind of regulate the immune response. So the, the big picture is the born with immune system and the acquired immune system, born with acts fast, but general, acquired, takes longer, but has this incredible memory. It's like somebody who bears a grudge, right? Who like never forgets. I remember that time in first grade, you kicked me and you told me my hair looked bad. And, you know, they never forget. That's how the acquired immune system is. <laughs> I love the analogy. Um I mean, that is like, I love the way you state it because it, it makes so much more sense to me now. And I feel like, you know, many people were kind of like confused with, um, of course, like vaccines and what they're really doing and, you know, the born worth required and adaptive. Now, the way you stated it, it, it just makes so much more sense. And I have to tell you, I had never heard of the P uh, or the B and the T lymphs before. And I really am liking them. <laughs> oh, good. Well, and you can go. Well. 
but you can go down that rabbit hole because with B&T, there's so much more Kimberly. So you can have fun learning about like the natural killer T cells and all the different things. It's, it's, the immune system is really complex, but it is fascinating because we never, you know, for many of us, we've never really had to think about it, but now all of us do, you know, not just somebody with an autoimmune disease or who's immunosuppressed, but we all have to think about the health and readiness of our immune system as, you know, it's not just COVID. Like we are, there have been in the last 50 years, there have been 30 new viruses for which we have no cure. So things like SARS-CoV-2, Ebola, HIV, hepatitis C, and, you know, there's a very, very well-known study from Duke and analysis that says, you know, the likelihood of this happening, again, is pretty high. So, you know, not, not trying to scare people, but just a, a dose of reality that we need to think about these things. We need to think about host health. We need to think about immune health, immune readiness, because this is a new world that we live in. Yeah. And I would agree. You know, I used to have the mindset, like, I don't want to know because, you know, the almost like ignorance is bliss, but I completely disagree with that mindset I used to have now, because how are we supposed to protect ourselves if we don't educate ourselves and learn all that we can, especially as things evolve, you know, in the health field. So, um, I, I just, I'm so happy that, yourself and your book, um, the antiviral gut are bringing all this, you know, to the surface of making people think deeper or expand their thought either way is a positive thing, I think. And it, and thank you for that, Kimberly. And it, it truly is positive because I think the more you learn, the more you marvel at like, wow, we're pretty well equipped, right? If we nurture this stuff, if we don't go and block our stomach acid, if we don't have to and suppress all these things and we let these natural defenses work for us, you realize we're in pretty good shape. Yeah, absolutely. And who doesn't want to know about themselves? We should be curious about ourselves. (laughs) So, okay, kind of going like a little bit um, backwards with something that you touched upon. You know, you share in your book about impactful things, including the statement of a small smear of stool obtained from your rectum will provide you with more valuable and accurate information than any other data points, including demographics, age, ethnicity, inflammatory markers, history, like heart disease, diabetes. That's so fascinating. Like, why does something seemingly so small, like a stool sample that people I think don't really ever think about reveal so much or, you know, like better yet, why does something that's viewed or thought of as waste to so many people have so much value? Yeah, it really is. A, a, I, I love the way you you put that, right? That's something that we think of as, as waste and to be discarded is actually incredibly valuable. It's um, It makes me think of, I just have to give a shout out to one of my favorite spots in DC, Teaism. Teaism in DuPont Circle, the DuPont Circle location opened around the same time I moved to DC in 97. And um, I was, this is sort of, off the topic, but I'll get back to the topic in a minute. I was renting an apartment when I moved here from New York, uh, right near Teism, like a block away. And then I decided I wanted to buy an apartment. And my older sister, who's lived here a long time, was helping me look. And after we looked at a bunch of apartments, she turned to me and she said, Robin, I do believe that your main criteria for buying an apartment 
is walking distance to teaism. And I looked at her and I said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it is. So it was, <laughs> it was just a spot that I just love their stuff. And I love one of the things on their menu is called, I think it's called like trash that's treasures or something like that. But it's basically, they use like these cabbage butts it's the it's the butt of the cabbage that people usually throw out that they sort of pickle and saute and and it's delicious. And so it makes me think, I mean, maybe I shouldn't use an eating analogy when I'm thinking about stool. But when you said, you know, use something as waste. So I love the fact that they take something that people would throw out and think is useless and make this delicious dish from and Again, let me be clear, not suggesting that any of you start eating the stool that we're talking about, but (laughs) when you realize that your microbiome is a more accurate reflector of you than your own DNA, it all makes sense. Your microbiome reveals more about what you've eaten, medications you've taken, your environment, where you've lived, your stress, whether you've had pets, than your own DNA. And we've been conditioned to think that DNA and our genes are super useful, and they are. But in the 30 years since we have been able to basically, you know, interpret the entire human genome, we have solved zero genetic diseases. And that's because the genes are really just a suggestion. Very few diseases are fully genetic. The the genes mean that you have an increased risk, but they don't tell the whole story. The microbes are a huge part of that because those little critters are actually literally turning these light switches on and off in your body that are the genes. They're flipping them up, they're flipping them down, turning them on and off. And so it is, again, for for me who studies a microbiome, it's not super surprising that this would have so much value, but I think it is a paradigm shift in in sort of how we think about our bodies, right? And and what they tell us. And all of these, all of these discoveries are astounding, you know, heart rate and blood pressure and lab tests. And I mean, it, there's so many things. So I don't mean to pit one thing against another, but as you point out, it's something that people are not thinking of as being useful. And, you know, if you look at the whole world of stool transplants, fecal microbiota transplants, and we see that those can be life-saving for certain conditions like Clostridium difficile, and there was just a study published for ulcerative colitis, a small study looking at uh, fecal transplants in combination with diet, which is how they should always be done for ulcerative colitis. Incredible results. So again, this is where it were, it's this new frontier in medicine. You know, we're riding this crest of these incredible discoveries, and it is a really exciting time to be in medicine. Yeah, I saw that as one of the videos that you posted on your Instagram, and I was blown away. I mean, first of all, this whole concept, um, and I think your analogy was spot on, the trash to treasure with, you know, in regard to the waste and the value of it. It's just so mind blowing because I don't know if it's we're becoming more sophisticated in our thought process, open minded, maybe a combination of things. But, you know, those things that we traditionally viewed as one way, it's just uh, amazing to have this new aspect and to recognize like a different thing about it, you know. I was I was reading this book the other day, Kimberly. I was actually listening to it on uh, audio, 
called From Strength to Strength. And you might have heard of it because I think it's been a big bestseller, came out maybe last year, earlier this year. And one of the things he says in that book is that we're we're just a speck. Our existence, you know, is is pretty inconsequential. The amount of time we're here, and even people who did great things, who are famous, their relevance in the whole sort of landscape of human existence is so minuscule. So when you think about medicine and where we are, the idea that like we are, you know, in some very advanced state, you got to be skeptical about that. We know a fraction of what we are ultimately going to know or what can be known. And I think it's always important to keep that in mind and to have an open mind and not think like we know everything, right? There's so much that we don't know that is new about our bodies and our minds, our immune system, all of this. So it is, what's been incredible too, is this whole sort of open access to the medical information that COVID has generated where you know, I have access to information, to scientific articles. Typically things have to be peer reviewed and there's a long process and that stuff is important. Don't get me wrong because it's important to validate the scientific integrity of these studies, but it can also mean that an important study could be held up several months to even over a year through this peer review process. And so COVID has really opened up that process and also opened up access for the public to have access to a lot of this great information that before was sort of only in a journal and you had to be a subscriber and you had to pay. And so it's really nice to see this sort of democratization of scientific information. Okay, so kind of like to that point in society and, you know, kind of like about the the verbiage and the buzzwords that we all use in our daily lives. You know, you explained in the antiviral gut about the microbial health and based on the total of what we eat, not it being based on like one ingredient or a specific food group you know, our focus being on adding the right stuff to our plate and not worrying about elimination. So to that point, you offered a really great detailed list of foods that people should eat and things they can do to up their chances against the battle of viruses and overall health. Can you please share some of those foods and lifestyle changes that you recommend for people as starting points? (coughs) Absolutely. And again, it is much less about, oh, you know, like for you, you obviously can't eat gluten because you have celiac disease, but it's much less about like, oh, these foods are bad. I should never eat sugar. I should never drink alcohol. I can't eat any, you know, refined flour. And it's much more about what we're missing. And what most of us are missing in America is indigestible plant fiber, that nice stringy plant fiber. So think of like asparagus and beans and celery. And I mean, it's all good. Lettuce is good too, right? Kale, cruciferous vegetables, all of that. But so green leafy vegetables, but also things like sweet potato and beans. And what all of these foods have is something called MAX, M-A-C, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. And so the bacteria take these microbiota accessible carbohydrates and they ferment them and they ferment them into what we call postbiotics. 
important bacterial metabolites like short-chain fatty acids, butyric acid, propionic acid. And it's these short-chain fatty acids that really guide the immune system and keep it at a nice steady level. Because again, Kimberly, we want an immune system that is active enough to clear the virus, but not so active that it's overreacting and now we're destroying normal healthy tissue. So I like to say we like that Goldilocks immune system just right. And how do we get a just right immune system? Well, the diet is a huge part of it because what we feed our gut bacteria matters. It matters because it determines what kind of bacteria we're cultivating. Are we cultivating the healthy, protective Fecalobacterium parasnitzii? Are we cultivating the not so good Enterococcus faecalis that can actually are associated with us being sicker? And do we have enough of those healthy bacteria to produce enough of these short chain fatty acids? So the thing that I most recommend for people is to try and eat more vegetables. And in my practice, I have a pretty simple rule I use with patients, which I call the one, two, three rule. One veggie at breakfast, two at lunch, three at dinner. I usually flip it because I like to do a green smoothie in the morning. So I'm usually putting in like, you know, three or four vegetables there. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting half my vegetables in in the morning. A very, very important study from the American Gut Project in 2018 told us that we need to eat about 30 different plant foods per week to have a healthy microbiome. They looked at thousands of patients around the globe and they found that 30 or more different plant foods per week, so I'm not just talking about vegetables, plants, was associated with a much healthier, more diverse, robust microbiome than people who ate 10 or fewer. So, you know, for some of my patients, they're like, oh, I eat vegetables with every meal, but they're eating the same sort of peas, carrots, broccoli in heavy rotation. So the variety matters. So when that study came out, I changed up my one, two, three rule. And I said, I want you to eat one, two, three, six servings a day of six different vegetables. And I want them to be different every day. So it made it a little more challenging. But again, like even if you're still eating your pizza and your hamburgers and your ice cream, right? I mean, just try not to eat too much of that stuff. But if you are paying attention and you're like, okay, I'm going to saute some spinach with my eggs in the morning, or I'm going to throw some extra blueberries in to my oatmeal and I'm going to make oatmeal and I'm going to use almond milk. So that's two. I'm going to put in walnuts, three, raisins, four, pumpkin seeds, five, blueberries, six, shredded coconut, seven. I'm going to make an oatmeal with seven different plants in it. And then at lunch, I'm going to have a salad and I'm not just going to do lettuce, tomato, cucumber, which is where like eight, nine, 10, but I'm going to throw in some chickpeas, 11, some shredded carrots, 12, you know, you keep going. So once you really start thinking about that goal of 30 different plant foods per week, I mean, you can get to 30 different plant foods a day if you put your mind to it, right? And so when, when people have that information, you know, I, I love going to the farmer's market and thinking about like, okay, what am I going to do with this weird food that I don't normally eat, right? Because I need <laughs> to expand. And when you think about it, again, common sense, if you want a diverse microbiome, you need to eat a diverse diet. And one of the things, I do this free office hours every Tuesday at noon. And um, one of the, the last topic we did right before I went on vacation was a microbiome and aging. And I reminded people, a very important study from the National Institute of Aging, where they found that as we age, we want the microbiome to continue to evolve and to become more diverse. 
And that is one of the signs of a healthy microbiome in older people. And how do we get a more diverse microbiome? It's not by eating the same peas and carrots every day. We need a diverse diet. And, you know, I, I do, again, as you know, I like to plug people, organizations that are doing really good work. My friend Rich Roll on his podcast, Rich Roll podcast, and I, I adore Rich and I listen to his podcast all the time, but I think my favorite episode of all time was from a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman named Mike Fremont, a centenarian. He's a hundred. He might be 101. Oh, wow. And he adopted a vegan diet at 69 after being diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer. And here he is 31 years later, running five to 10 miles, three times a week, doing pull-ups unassisted and setting records for marathons and half marathons. And he, I mean, you, you, you look, you listen to this podcast and you look at Mike Fremont and you want, I, you just think I want some of what he's having and what is he doing? (laughs) He's out in nature. He's a canoer. He, by the way, has a think tank of friends, elderly friends who are trying to save the world and figure out climate change. So he's engaged with his community and his environment. He's out there outside running and paddling. He's eating a ton of plants, you know? So I always talk about my hashtag dirt, sweat, veg, right? And again, these are the things that matter, that make a difference. It's not about following some strict set of food rules. It's about making sure you're eating a diverse diet with lots of food from the farm and less food from the factory and, you know, getting a little sleep and drinking water, moving your body, getting out in nature. It's the basics, Kimberly. Well, you know, I I love how you put it because, you know, with the 30 different plant foods, right? When I had read about that, I was like, okay, I'm intrigued. And, but to the point that you made, you know, that could seem overwhelming, but then when you break it down and you're like, oh, I can make something, it can have 10 ingredients, those 10 different ingredients already right there. You just had, you know, 10 different foods. Um, And that makes it so much more less intimidating the way you put it, which I really appreciate. And by the way, I have to catch that podcast and I want to, uh, be like Mike. <laughs> yeah, I want to be like Mike too. It's so funny. I was speaking um a couple of weeks ago, right before we left on vacation at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, that my friend Neil Barnard from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, another group doing wonderful work, puts on. And I in my talk, I even had a picture of him. I was like, I've got to tell you guys about this guy, Mike Fremont. And then somebody in the audience stood up in the question section. She's a nutritionist in Cleveland where he's from. And she's like, I know Mike really well. We just threw him a hundredth birthday party. I'm going to tell him that you, I was like, please do. So she, um, you know, she was part of his community and I just love that. You know, it's not like he's some super famous guy or anything. I mean, I hadn't heard about him. He's just somebody out there, you know, doing his thing. And, um, I think just proving to all of us how important and meaningful and impactful this stuff can be. Yeah, it's cool. He's leading by lifestyle and that's yeah. like a nice, you know, it's nice and subtle. So um, very admirable. 
Well, okay. So you had mentioned um, just a moment ago, you touched upon like, you know, farm, yes, factory, no, which is what you have a section on in your book. Uh, I thought it was a really great way to explain the value of good gut eating habits because you shared like, you know, if you're ever in a bind and we all have these lifestyles on the go now, right? So you're like, if you're, you know, questioning whether something's good for you or your microbes, there's an easy way to figure it out. And you were saying that if food came straight from the farm, go ahead, eat it. But if it stopped in a factory, don't bother. I just love that. And, you know, your examples say yes to apples, but no to applesauce. Yes to brown rice, but no to brown rice cereal. Um what like um, made you come up with that? I I came up with that several years ago when I was trying to explain to my patients what processed food is because over and over again, I would say, okay, you have Crohn's disease. We know that emulsifiers in food have been clearly scientifically linked to conditions like this. So I want you to sort of eat cleaner. And then somebody would inevitably pull out like some kind of, nutrition bar, right? And be like, yeah, well, this is what I eat. Look, it's got eight grams of protein, this grams of net carbs and all this stuff. And I would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, and I'm like, okay, what's the shelf? And they tell me like, oh, it's super pure. It's just blah, 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 you know, nuts, raisins, da, da, da. And then I'm like, what's the shelf life on that? Okay. It expires in two and a half years. If I took an apple, some nuts and raisins and put them on the counter, they would not be good two and a half years later. So that is impossible that there are not, you know, emulsifiers, stabilized, et cetera, in that food. And so that's when I came up with like, people were having, I felt like a hard time understanding what processed was. And I can understand why that was the case, Kimberly, because there's so much marketing spent around food, right? Like slapping all this, what's really marketing on a food that looks like it's informative, but it's just gobbledygook to make you buy it, right? And trying to disguise a food. Like I would look at these things and I'm like, that's a candy bar. You can tell me about how many grams of this or that, looks like a candy bar, tastes like a candy bar. This is a candy bar. This is not <laughs> what, you know what I mean? And so I came up with this, like, here's a deal, like potato chips. It's got an ingredient list. It's not just potatoes. It's, you know, it's oil and potatoes and salt and this and that. And then you start to get further down. It's often some things that you've never really heard of. And so I still love Michael Pollan's book in defense of food, you know, where his little cliff notes, food rules, where he's like, you know, if it's got ingredients that your grandmother wouldn't recognize, like, <laughs> you know, like that is not a food ingredient. That is a science experiment. And so not to say like, it's not like I would never eat applesauce. There's applesauce in my house, but understand the difference between an apple and applesauce, right? So again, it's not like these things are forbidden, but you you try again, balance. You want to make sure that your diet isn't all these packaged foods and you want to get out of the supermarket, get the to the farmer's market if you can, or you know, think about joining a CSA. It's actually less expensive. We're promoting small farmers and um, you know, you're getting typically better food that hasn't stopped in the factory. And so, you know, I see like the green bean chips and I'm like, this is not the same as a green bean. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, this once was a green bean, you know, or if you think about something like corn, like they make tires out of corn, 
So, you know, you can kind of take corn and make it into anything. And, um, and that's so, shocking. I never knew that. And yeah, that is I, just... I'm pretty sure <laughs> that that can be done. So it, it really is important as we are all busy and on the go that we think about how, you know, could you throw an apple into your bag instead of something packaged? And it, it's not going to be all the time, but as, as trying to create some balance there. Uh, well, I think it's an excellent point you make. And again, I think it's things that we kind of take for granted. And, and I don't necessarily know why. Is it the hustle and bustle of life? Is it that we're, uh, you know, just going along? Uh, but that was such a powerful example you gave of, okay, because I didn't even think of this. Okay, I think I have a bar that's like, you know, healthy, but what is the shelf life? And if you took those ingredients singularly and put them in front of me, they wouldn't last as long and they're more healthful. So why not just have that? Like, um, I'm very grateful to you to, you know, for, um, allowing me to see things differently like that and others, you know, I think that's going to be pretty eye-opening to many people. Thanks, Kimberly. It, it, you know, I think there's just so much marketing, there's so much commerce involved, you know, and so the messaging to us about these foods and these edible food-like substances um, and this dressing up of these things as being somehow magical and super healthy, it's really hard to resist. And, you know, it's hard even for people like me who know it to sometimes resist, much less somebody who doesn't have the scientific background, et cetera. And we just don't have, you know, most of us just don't have a ton of time by the time we shop and cook the food and put it on the table and clean up. I mean, I, I have this complaint with my sister a lot of the time. My, my sister, I'm very lucky that she lives here just around the corner from me. And we usually host my parents for family dinner, she or I. And I was complaining to her that my dad, who's 87 and he's a retired surgeon and he literally cannot boil a pot of water. <laughs> and I said, you know, dad comes over here and, you know, sometimes he's like cranky that like we're late or something. And I'm like, he has no idea what is involved in going to the supermarket or the farmer's market, prepping the food, cooking the food, putting it out on the table, cleaning up after like, it's so much work. This is like four hours of work. And he arrives and is like, oh, I'm hungry. Why? You know what I mean? So I was, <laughs> I was complaining just a couple of days ago to her that as somebody who's literally never prepared food, he literally has no idea. And it's time consuming. Yeah. Time consuming. So we'll get how it would be for people, but you know, to your point, so worth it, you know, it's are, important. Are we yeah. not worth the investment in ourselves type of thing? You know? Um, well, you are absolute pure joy. I am so super grateful to have had you on this show. Um, your book, The Antibio Gut, is just super informative, and I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Thank you. But I know you have to go on to other things, but um, before you go, I was just wondering, you know, you touched upon this with Mike Fremont in a way, but, it, you know, is it ever too late? People might feel like kind of discouraged depending on the point of their life that they're hearing this. Um, is it ever too late to make the changes in life that you outlined in your book due to age or severity of an existing health condition? 
never too late, Kimberly. And in fact, we have really good science that's very encouraging in this area. We have a study from the journal Nature from about eight years ago, where they took nine volunteers and they put them on one diet for five days and they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after, and then they switched the diet to a healthier diet. And they found that within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, everything started to change. The microbes started to shift and not just the microbes, but the different genes that were turned on and off also changed. And so that's so exciting. It's such you know, reason for optimism that we can literally shift this community that is responsible for our health in a day and a half by making these changes. So the microbiome that you, you know, wake up with on a Monday morning can be very different from the one that you go to bed with on Tuesday night based on those choices, based on what you eat, what you think, your sleep, have you, you know, gotten out there, some soil microbes, et cetera. It's all in the book. And, and I love that because really, I think my, the thing that I'm most passionate about is really empowering people to understand their bodies, their guts, and to take control of their health. And so, you know, you read a study like that and you're like, wow, you know, this is incredible. Like even the genes are changing based on the diet, changing the microbes. So it really is never too late. And I'll tell you that I have seen people young, old, in between with severe autoimmune diseases, put their disease into remission with these changes. Now, you know, we still rely on medications for a lot of patients and some of my patients are on a combination, but it has been eye-opening to see what can be done by people really changing how they live, what they eat, et cetera. And uh, I'm awed by that. Well, uh, I highly encourage um, everyone out there to go and buy a copy of your book, The Antiviral Gut. And Dr. Chutkin has three other amazing books that you should also check out called Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. To pick up her books, please go to her website at www.robinchutkin.com. And also, uh, it's so valuable. I highly encourage you to follow Dr. Chutkin and watch. She puts out these super amazing value-packed videos on her Instagram, which is at gut bliss. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I am so grateful that you shared about your field and being an enlightening health powerhouse that you are. Um, Thanks for being on Plug Dr. Chuckin. My pleasure. Rock on.